We are in week two of our Incarnation uh, Epiphany sermon series in which we look at not only the fact that Jesus is here, we celebrate Christmas, Jesus is here, but we ask the question, what's he doing here? Um, it's not the most theological way of phrasing that question, but that's the core of what we're doing over the next several weeks is asking, Jesus is here, so now what, right? Um, the fancy way of saying it is the word became flesh in Jesus so that the word could become flesh in us. Um, but as we start this week, I want to talk just for a minute about um, the advantages of technology. Um, kind of a weird transition, right? Um, but one, one in very particular specific uh, thing I'm thinking of, and that is uh, streaming old 80s television shows, right? The world is, is blessed because old television shows are available on demand, right? Anybody else find themselves lost? And yeah, so <clears throat> I'm currently binging uh, Knight Rider. Uh, as a child, I remember it being this amazing show. You know, it had a Trans Am in it, which is still my favorite car, probably because of Knight Rider. Um, <clears throat> watching it now, I, I, I realized it was only on for four seasons, and it felt like it was longer than that when I was a kid, but it was only on for four seasons. And uh, watching it today, I realized why it wasn't very good. Um, <laughs> but it got me thinking about some of my other favorite shows as a kid, and... and uh, I've kind of peeked at some of those, but like MacGyver, we have any MacGyver fans? Yeah. How about the A-Team, right? Or at least everybody knows the theme song and knows who Mr. T is, right? So MacGyver and A-Team were some of my favorite because uh, they would, no matter what the situation was, no matter what the circumstance was, they could take whatever was around them and make it into something. Like if you ever watch the A-Team, there's they find themselves in a terrible situation, like locked in a garage or, you know, the military, you know, military's coming to get them or something's going on, and they just start welding things and, and putting things together. You know, there's always a, a dramatic welding scene, though, right, lighting the torch. And the music is playing, and there's this montage, and you don't, like, you have no idea what they're doing. And then, like, the music kicks in, and they, like, come busting through the wall, and they've got a tank that they made out of, like, plexiglass or something. I don't know. It's always some crazy. And MacGyver was the same way, right? Like, no matter what was around him, he could make it work, you know, paper clip and a stick of gum, and he saves the world. Well, <clears throat> as a kid, like, I wanted to be a part of the A-team or wanted to be MacGyver, um, except I had no ability whatsoever along those lines. And so <clears throat> I, this kind of unlocked a forgotten memory of mine when I was thinking about this. But when I was younger, um, the house we lived in, my bedroom was on the second floor, and I really wanted to be like part of the A-team or MacGyver or something like this. And so I started to build a net. And I don't know what I was going to do with a, a net. I don't know if I was going to like hook it to the wall and climb down it. I don't know if I was going to catch things with it. I, I really don't know. But I had no idea how to make a net. And so I had a, a, a bunch of kite string on a spool. I think it was kite string. Maybe it was a little bit heavier gauge, but string nonetheless. And I had scotch tape. And so I secretly up in my bedroom, I was probably, I don't know, six or seven, started taping together a net. Hundred, uh, like, you know, just take the tape and where the string crossed, and it. But of course, that's a big project, right? I wanted to make a big, a big net, and so I keep it stashed in my desk drawer so my mom wouldn't find it. And then of course, obviously, the next time you take it out, it's a mess. Like making a net out of string and scotch tape isn't really the way to go about it. So don't take that as advice. But like. I was going to be like the A-team. I was going to be like MacGyver and make something just from what I had sitting around. 
it was going to be, it, it never panned out. And I, I think when we moved, I remember throwing it away. Um, it was just a big wad of st- sticky string. Um, but I realized um, kind of by this fascination, and, and here's the really smooth uh, transition, um, you can only work with what you have, right? Like, so I didn't have access to all the cool stuff. This is the only reason it didn't work. I didn't have access to all the cool stuff the A-team had. So I couldn't do the A-team stuff, right? Um, you can only use what you have, and you can most certainly only share with others the things that you have yourself, right? And so as we look at our scripture today, as we look at what Jesus is doing, um, not only in the stories, but in us as individuals, but also in us as the church, as we, as we look at the scripture today, think about what is at hand, and think about who's doing what with, with what. Um, so our scripture today comes from uh, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Um, it's a fairly familiar story from the life of Jesus. Um, just a little trivia tidbit. It's the first miracle that Jesus performs in the Gospels. Um, so John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. It says, On the third day a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, Now draw out draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Uh, pray with me, if you will. Heavenly Father, we are, again, grateful um, that your word speaks to us today, that we can uh, be gathered together here in this sanctuary, um, freed from the noise and busyness of life, and hear these stories in the life of Jesus, that you have preserved them and passed them from generation to generation so that we may know of the good things that Jesus did and that we, like the disciples, may believe in him. But more importantly, we are grateful for the word that became flesh and dwelt amongst us. We are grateful for the the word that became uh, alive and near to us and present in us through Jesus. Um, And then during this specific season series in the life of the church we're grateful for the word that becomes flesh in us that you redeem us you reconcile us you restore us you save us and you sanctify us to make us more like your son we thank you and love you amen so this is a fun story in the life of jesus nobody's nobody's healed there's no miraculous things The conclusion of this story is that the disciples believed. Um, As John says here, it's the first of the signs. If you read the Gospel of John, 
Um, he talks about the miracles as signs, and what he means is it's an indicator of who Jesus was. Jesus is. Um, John is very much worried about identifying Jesus as the specific role that he is, son of God, son of man, Messiah. And so the miracles, yeah, they do good works, but they're uh, pointing to a bigger picture of, of who Jesus is. Um, but as with most of the stories in the life of Jesus, there's kind of like an understanding that we can get just through reading it. Um, but if you understand the context of the story a little bit deeper, it opens a whole other layer of understanding. Um, anyone who would have originally heard this story you know, back in the first century Judaism, um, first century Israel, they would have heard the story and known exactly what was going on. Um, but because weddings are different for us today than they were in Jesus' day, there's some things that might get lost in translation. Right? Today, you know, weddings kind of all happen within a couple hours. The planning goes for a long time, the setup all goes for a long time, but the event, the actual wedding service is relatively short, and then there's the, the reception afterwards, and then maybe honeymoon, like you guys know how weddings work. But in the ancient days, in the time of Jesus, weddings were different. They were critically important to the life of a community. It was a big deal. Um, and they had uh, ceremonies that lasted several days. Um, they were accompanied by feasts, um, that would occur over several days. And, and honestly, the, the wealthier the family or the more important the family, the longer the, the ceremony would go. Um, but weddings were, were, like I said, kind of like a holiday in that community to the point where if a religious festival overlapped, a religious holiday overlapped with the wedding ceremony, culture's norms was to go to the wedding and not the religious ceremony. It'd be like, uh, skipping Christmas to go to a, a wedding or skipping Easter to go to a wedding like that's how big of a deal these wedding feasts were uh, in the time of Jesus um, according to the custom wedding celebrations could last like I said several days sometimes up to a week but also it would involve a lot of people you know um, the, the guest list would include oftentimes the, the, whole, the whole village or the whole city, the whole town, not probably not a whole city, but the whole town, um, depending on, again, the wealth and status of the family. But there was a sense of hospitality tied to this, a sense of communal celebration. A wedding was, was a community event. Um, even people who, who disliked the wedding family, <laughs> if there was an old feud, they would still come. They would still be invited um, because the wedding was bigger than that feud. It was bigger than whatever the conflict was. It would have been socially inappropriate to decline the invitation. And so with that custom, without, with that practice in place, there comes a, a high sense of importance on the idea of hospitality. So a family was expected potentially to host guests for up to seven days. Um, it might mean some lodging, but most importantly, it probably meant food and drink for multiple days. And so in our story this morning, the wine has run out. <clears throat> the feast is going on, the celebration is going on, the wedding has happened. We don't know what day, we don't know how far into this it is. We don't know a lot, but we know the wine's gone. It could have been poor planning on the hosts. <coughs> it could have been that there were some guests there that just took more than they should have. They consumed too much. Um, maybe it was more people showed up than they were expecting. You know, some people crashed the wedding. Um, 
maybe the family wasn't very wealthy and this was all they could afford. And so they just put everything they had into this celebration and this is as far as it would go. But regardless of the reason, the wine is gone. That's the problem. That's the issue at hand. Um, they didn't have enough wine to meet the needs and the demands of those they wished to serve and the wine is gone so the party's going to kind of fizzle out at this point. The needs were greater than the resources that were available. Right? That's the dynamic that they're, they're working with here. The needs, the wants were bigger than what was available. And this is a huge issue in a culture that there was such an emphasis on hospitality. So imagine you got an invite to a wedding and you went to the wedding and it was all, you know, nice and weddings what they are. And then you go to the reception and there's 200 people invited to the reception but they only have food for 50. That would be embarrassing. <laughs> that would be a problem. So take that type of scenario and then multiply it out maybe 10 times over. That's how big of a deal. It would have brought shame to this family. It would have brought condemnation, judgment. It could have affected their standing in the community. It could have affected their business if they were um, if they did trading or had relationships like that in their community, it, it could have had a huge impact on the family. So Mary, mother of Jesus, gets involved. And it's possible that like this wedding was one of her relatives or a friend. And so she had, might have had an official role in the wedding. Maybe she was part of it. Maybe it was part of her job to help. Um, maybe it wasn't. Maybe she was just attending. I don't know. But... <coughs> She grabs the disciples and says, hey, listen to Jesus, do what he says. And so Jesus initially doesn't really want to, but he does, right? We just read the story. And Jesus takes the six stone jars, and these jars are re reserved for ritual cleansing, um, not for serving wine. And the servants filled them with water. And the Bible says each jar can hold 20 to 30 gallons of water. Right? <clears throat> so we end up with 120 to 180 gallons of water. And then Jesus turns all that water into wine. The hosts went from being completely out of wine to having 180 gallons of wine. This party is now set to continue on for quite a while, right? Can you imagine 180 gallons of anything? I mean, that's small swimming pool type thing we're talking here. They went from having absolutely no wine to 180 gallons. And the thing was, it wasn't just any old wine. The master of the ceremonies, the master of the banquet, said it was better than the original wine. So this host family went from having nothing, not having any wine to provide, to having 150, 180 gallons of the very best wine. Talk about rags to riches. Talk about a, a turn of fortunes, right? This is a huge, huge shift. It's not just a small deal. This is major in the life of this family. And so during this season, in the life of the church, the season after Christmas, the season we call Epiphany, um, we're not only celebrating that Jesus came to live amongst us, but we're, we're, like I said, talking about and identifying what Jesus is doing while he's here. The word of the flesh, or the word became flesh in Jesus, so that the word will become flesh in us. Last week we talked about that Jesus is living amongst us to make us holy. He is holy so that we may be holy. Um, the 
baptism by fire and all that. But what is Jesus doing in us and through us in this story? I mean, it just seems like he just turned water into wine at a wedding party. Like, what does this have to do with the church? What does this have to do with us? But in the same way that the hosts of the party wanted to be good hosts, the way that the family wanted to have, uh, to be a good host for this wedding, um, the way that this family wanted to provide for their guests, many people today want to be good and caring and forgiving and generous and gracious people, right? Whether that is to be a good parent, a good spouse, a good member of the church, a good neighbor, a good coworker, maybe a good friend, a good family member, whatever. People desire to be good in their relationships with others, to provide. They want to make a difference in people's lives, and they want to make, like, they, they, they might even feel that it's their duty. They have a responsibility to be a good parent or a good spouse. It comes with the territory. It comes with the job. I have to be good at this. I have to do it well. And as a pastor, I'm encouraged to see that happening in and through our church. You all, I see that desire. Conversations I have with you want to make a difference in the lives of the people around you. We have a desire to bless those around those around us. We want to have a positive impact on people's lives. And if this is where you are this morning, I want to say that I'm glad that you've taken that step. I'm glad that that is your desire. You know, as a pastor, it makes me proud to be pastor of a church that that is their mission and goal. You are taking seriously the command of Jesus to love your neighbors even to love your enemy, and that's hard. In a culture that teaches us that we need to be concerned about ourselves, first and foremost, you are understanding that God is calling us to participate in a broader community and to be blessings to those who are around us. And so if that's you this morning, I celebrate you. I pray for you. I appreciate the fact that you are doing that in the name of Jesus. But if that's you this morning, I know something else about you. If you've made a decision to share your faith or share the blessings that you've received, <coughs> you will quickly find the end. And what I mean by that is you will find the end of your knowledge. You will find the end of your energy. You will find the end of your patience. You will find the end of your own strength, the end of your available time. You will find the end of yourself. If you are serious about sharing your faith or sharing the blessings you have received with others, you will know your limits because you will feel the pressure of when you've run up to them. I'd love to help, but I don't have time. I'd love to help, but I don't have the money. I'd love to help, but I don't have, you know, I'd, I'd like to be a better parent, but I've run out of patience. I'd let, you know, you will find the end. So if you've committed to doing that or if that's a choice that you're trying to make, it's like you've invited people to a wedding party. You want to host the, the banquet, but for a minute you were amazing host. Things were going so well. You're using your own strength, your own resources, your own energy, and things were going great. And then the party just kept going. Or more people showed up knocking on the door. It required more of you than you expected, and eventually the wine runs out. Eventually there's nothing left to give. That's why the, the title for today's sermon is You Don't Have Enough Wine. That's why it says that on the front of the bulletin. 
Um, I email exchange with Katie this week. I told her, I made a joke that I should probably put an asterisk there um, and with like a note at the bottom, like don't actually go buy more wine. That's not what we're doing here. Um, but that's why there's the title of it because <coughs> we all come to that point. If you're taking seriously this responsibility to be a, a good parent, a good spouse, a good neighbor, whatever, you are going to find the limitations of your own resources. And so I should say at this point that if you're, you're here today or listening online and you've made the decision, I'm only going to care about myself. Uh, I'm really only interested in how this benefits me. I'm only interested about how well my life goes. Um, if you made that decision, you don't feel any obligation to your neighbors. Um, if you think everybody's on their own in this life, then the next part of this message won't affect you at all. It just, it just won't. This message today is for those who are wanting to take seriously the call that Jesus has placed on all of us to see our blessings that we have received as a vehicle to bless others, right? To use what God generously gives us in order for us to be generous people too. So if you've concluded that your faith is just me and God, the next little bit won't mean much. But if you've tried to say yes to the call of God, the, the call that God has put on your life to love your neighbor as you love yourself, if you take that seriously, then you'll understand what I mean when I say you don't have enough wine. You want to host the party. You want to invite people to come and experience the good things that you are experiencing. You want to tell people about the grace and the mercy that God has shared with you. You want to make a difference in people's lives. You want others to come to know the peace and love of Jesus. And so you've taken your love and the compassion, your energy, your best efforts, your best ideas, and you've poured it out like wine being served at a party. But as the needs of the people that you are trying to serve, trying to help become more apparent, as the crowd starts to gather at the wedding, as you, as, as you start to see the line to receive the goods and services that you're trying to provide, you realize something about the fundamental uh, economic and logistical situation that's going on here. There's more demand than there is supply. There are more takers than givers. There are more needs than resources. There's more people needing a drink than there is wine at the party. And that's when it hits you. Maybe for the first time, or maybe it's a reminder, but it's, I don't have enough wine. Um, and that's where the, the, the big truth comes in for today. And this is going to sound obvious. It's on the screen already. It, it's going to seem really simple. But you can't give away what you do not have. And this is going to be the, the foundational thing that, that I, I want us to understand today. You cannot give away what you do not have. So have you ever been there? Have you ever been in having a conversation with a family member or a friend? Uh, maybe about faith, about what God's doing or something like that. And they ask you a question and and you really want to have the answer, but you don't? Like, ah, oh, there's the end of my knowledge. <laughs> this is as far as I can go here. Or maybe you've, you've tried to help a person in need, but you quickly realize that their needs exceed what you have available. Maybe you're, you're confronted then with the reality of, well, do I, do I continue to give them more than what I actually can afford to give them? Or do I walk away feeling like I let them down and feeling guilty and shame that I wasn't able to meet their needs? I'm thinking of a time Jessica and I were, we went to Chicago to see a show, and we're after the show, it's kind of late, we're walking back to the car, the parking garage, and a guy says, hey, can you help me? 
You know, it's 1130, streets of Chicago. Do you remember this? And the guys, I said, what do you need, man? And he said, I, I just need a bus ticket to get home. And I'm like, all right, we can do a bus ticket. Well, it turns out, and again, not being from Chicago and understanding kind of the current thing, you don't just go to the bus stop and get a ticket or whatever. Like, they have, like, cards that you have to put money on. They have these, like, ATM-type things all over the city that you put the card in, you swipe it, and then they can punch onto the buses. So the guy's like, I just need you to put money on my card for me. All right, okay, cool. So we start following him. We end up down some some stairs in this dark, I don't know exactly what it was, but there's like a couple of these ATM looking things down there. Like, we don't know this guy. Now her and I are, you know, almost midnight in Chicago walking. We don't even know where we are relative to where we started. We just followed the guy here. We put some money on his card and he went on his way. But it was one of those moments where like we're looking at each other. We're kind of in at this point. Did I just give him 20 bucks and walk away? I don't even think we had cash. I was like, do I just tell him, oh, sorry, this is more involved than what I had originally anticipated. But there was a moment where I realized that this situation was involving more than I intended. I was trying to get this guy on a bus, and now I'm in the, like, a field like a basement in the middle of Chicago at midnight. Um, that's how the headline starts, right? Like, pastor and wife found, anyways. Um, but you find yourselves confronted by the choice of giving more of your time, more of your energy, more of your, uh, yourself than you had originally planned. Like this is more demanding than what I thought. Or you walk away feeling inadequate or guilty for not being able to help. Or maybe you've attempted to meet a need only to realize that like you have no way to meet this need. It is bigger or harder it requires more resources than you ever anticipated. And so while you said yes initially, you can't do this for this person. Have you ever tried to invite people to your party but realized at some point you don't have enough wine? You quickly learn that you cannot give away what you do not have. If you've ever felt like the needs are, that you are trying to meet are greater than the resources you possess... You might feel that things are too big. You've ever said, I can't keep this up for much longer. Then you know why the sermon is called, You Don't Have Enough Wine. You might have found yourself in that situation. But I have good news for you today. Anybody want some good news? This sounds pretty pretty awful at this point. The good news starts with this. It doesn't mean you aren't strong enough, and it doesn't mean that you don't have enough faith. I don't care how big a container is, if, if more is pouring out of it than is going into it, it will run empty. So whether it's a small glass with a leak in the bottom of it or a swimming pool with a hole in the side, doesn't matter the size of it. If, you are, if more is pouring out than is pouring in, it will run empty. So it, it's not a statement of, of how big your faith is or how strong you are as a person. If you try to pour out more than you take in, you will run out. And again, you cannot give away what you do not have. The other part of the good news is that this is not a unique experience for you. You are not the only person feeling this way. Uh, I've taken pastoral care classes at both the undergraduate and graduate level. And the first several sessions of both of those classes were talking uh, to pastors about self-care. <laughs> so I signed up for classes to learn how to, how to care for congregations and how to do some counseling and how to meet people's needs. And the first two weeks in both of those classes was how to take care of myself. And I felt like, this is wrong. 
It's not what I signed up for. I want to learn how to help other people. My pastoral care professor at Olivet, uh, his name was Dr. Bill Bray, he told us that we couldn't give away that which we do not have. You can only use what you have. And most importantly, you can only share or give away that which you have received. Lately, I've had similar conversations with many people that were pretty similar. People are overwhelmed by the demands of life. People are overwhelmed by the, the different needs that people have, all the relationships. Oh, at work, people need this from me. At home, people need this from me. At church, people need this from me. In my neighborhood, people need this. At family, people need this. And people are overwhelmed by the needs, the demands, the expectations. People are, are saying things like, it started out great. I thought I had it under control. I thought I had it fixed, but it just kept getting harder. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do. And so in those conversations, I find myself repeating Dr. Bray. You can't give away what you haven't received. You cannot give away what you do not have. Have you ever felt the stress and the anxiety, the sense of failure or exhaustion as you started on a journey of faith, only to realize along the way that you don't have enough of whatever on your own? You get that sense that the wine's going to run out. That the job is bigger than you are. The demands don't let up just because you wish they would. The world just doesn't pause just because you need it to. As a church, our mission, our, our goal, kind of the reason why we do what we do is, is to help people love God, to love others, and to serve the world, to serve the community, right? Like, this is what we're about, loving God, loving others, serving in the world. We want to be a church that, that does that for other people. Not only do we want to love God, but we want to help other people fall in love with God. Not only do we want to love other people, but we want to help and teach and equip and invite other people to love each other the way that God has taught us to love. Not only do we want to serve a community, but we want to teach and equip others to serve their communities as well. As a church, we want to make a profound difference in our community. I've had these conversations with many of the ministry leaders and the congregation. Like, we want to make a difference. We want to be a place that people know that they can come for help without judgment or condemnation. No shame. We're here for you. Our mission at its core isn't just to do activities and programs, but the, the deepest sense of our identity, we are motivated by a love for people in our towns and our communities. And God is at work shaping us more and more into that church. God is making us as individuals and as the body together more like Jesus. But can I tell you a secret? And this is probably a terribly kept secret. When you do your, when your job, the, your mission is task-oriented, you can just set it down and walk away. Oh, I'm working on this old lawnmower. I can't get it started. I'm getting frustrated. I'm just going to put it back in the shed and come back to it next week. You can just... Set it down and walk away when it's a task. But when your mission, your job is people, the needs never end. The needs are always bigger than the resources. The demand is always greater than the supply. And that brings us back to our question for this epiphany season in the life of the church. I want you to ask this question each and every week. Since Jesus is here with us, what is he doing in us, and what is he doing through us? So the question for this, with the wine running out, what is Jesus doing? 
And I love this story. This quickly became one of my favorite scriptures. I know that I say that about every scripture, but this quickly became one of my favorite scriptures because in this story, Jesus takes absolutely ordinary stuff, just this plain old water, and he transforms it into blessings, the best wine possible. Right? He takes ordinary stuff and he makes it divine. He takes ordinary stuff and he makes it a blessing. He takes ordinary stuff, which they have in abundance, and he turns it into something that felt like it was scarce. He takes ordinary things and he transforms them into blessings to share with those around them. So if we could have the next slide. Yeah, Jesus' mission isn't to give us what we want. Jesus' mission is to provide what we need in order to live the way that he teaches us to. Right? So instead of worrying that the needs of those around you exceed your own resources, right, that, that you don't have enough wine, that on your own the bucket's going to run dry, but rather than worrying about that the needs of those around you exceed your own resources, you can trust that not only will Jesus provide what you need, but the things that Jesus provides are better than what you could do on your own. <laughs> right? Not only is Jesus providing what you need to live the way that he's asked you to, but the things that he provides are better than the things you could provide on your own. Who can love your family better than Jesus does? Who can give more grace than Jesus gives? Who can work through limitations, financial limitations, health limitations? Who, who can work through these situations in the way that Jesus does? Jesus takes everyday, regular stuff, stuff that we wouldn't even think about twice, and he turns it into something that is much more than we could ever imagine it to be. And that remind, leads me to the next thing you need to know. And this is important. It's not your party. Right? You're not actually the host. Therefore, you're not the one responsible to provide the drinks. You're a guest at this banquet. At, at most, you're a helper at this feast. Right? The burden isn't on you. You're a guest who's been invited to God's good feast. God's great banquet. God's banquet. And Jesus is the one preparing the table. He's the one providing the meal. This is a hard thing for me to remember as a pastor. I have to remind myself of this often, more than I do. I forget, too, that I am a guest at God's good banquet. I start worrying about how much wine we have, so to speak. I start thinking that God creates a goal for the church or creates a mission for the church, and my job is to find a way to make it happen. But when I start thinking like it's my party, like I'm the host, like I'm responsible for the outcomes, and I'm responsible for providing for it, um, I forget to enjoy it. This party that God has invited me to as a pastor, as a member of the body of Christ, this celebration, this great feast becomes a burden instead of a celebration. Where am I going to get more wine? How am I going to meet all these needs? I mean, I know me. I know my limitations. I know my strengths. I know my weaknesses. I know what is needed. I, I know what people are asking for, and I know that I don't have it all. I don't have enough wine. But it's not my party. And I know that I'm not, I can't be the only one that struggles with this. So if you, like me, wrestle with this idea that you don't have enough or you aren't enough to do what God wants you to do or you don't have enough or can't do, can't be who God wants you to be, 
want you to find peace this morning in the knowledge that our deepest identity, the core of who we are as, as believers, as followers of Jesus, the core of who we are are not workers for Jesus, but guests at his party. And God is working. It is Jesus that has come at Christmas and is in charge of the inventory. He's the one making sure there's enough wine. And so as we kind of uh, wrap up our thoughts for today, I want to encourage you. If you want to share your faith with others, if you want to give out the wine, you want to share what God has given us, first you must nurture your faith. First you must receive. If you want to give away God's grace, you must first commit to living a life that receives that grace and depends upon that grace. And so the invitation for us to today is not to know things, but to develop habits. Some call them spiritual disciplines. Develop these habits that connect you to Jesus as the source of your life. It may seem counterintuitive. It may seem backwards. Like, I want to help, I want to bless the world, so I'm going to start by making sure I get what I need. The image that is often used in uh, the pastoral care classes is, you know, if you're on a plane and it loses uh, cabin pressure. You put it on your own mask first, and then you can help other people. As somebody that's caring about other people, that might feel selfish or backwards or counterintuitive, but remember, you cannot give away what you have not received. And so if we're going to be a church, if we're going to be individuals that, that give God's resources, that pour out abundantly into our community, we have to make sure that we're first receiving it. So commit this year to participate in the habits that connect you deeper with Jesus. Make it a priority. Make it a conscious decision. We've kind of started filtering things into three categories around here. One of those categories is a practice of worship. And in the most common vernacular, it's just loving God. Right? So commit this year to love God. Spend time with God in prayer. Spend time acknowledging that all that you have is received as a gift and be grateful praise God and worship God as the source and sustainer of your life this year commit to worship but don't stop there another one of our categories that we talk about around here is connecting right and in kind of common vernacular that's loving others in the context of today's story it's enjoy the party right that God has organized Come be a guest on the guest list. Come participate in the life of the party. God, God has gathered us into community, not just so that we can all sit in one room together, but so that we can live life. So say yes to opportunities to connect with other people as they journey on their path of faith as well. And the truth is you will find yourself um, supporting each other, encouraging each other. You will find abundant supply of new wine as you connect, as you spend time with other Jesus followers. And then kind of the third category of, of spiritual practices or spiritual habits that I'm inviting you to commit to this year is to serve. Serve the world, serve the community, serve in church. Not just be busy and fill up your calendar with activities, but serving. Doing something that meets somebody else's needs. When you serve in the name of Jesus, you learn to understand the difference between things that you do in your own strength and things <clears throat> that we do through the empowerment of the Spirit. This is the most amazing thing of being a pastor, is seeing God do things through you that you're like, I, I, I know that was God because I could not have done that. 
but serving others, you, you get to witness how the, the outcomes go differently when I do it in my own strength and when I rely on God. If we rely on our own resources to serve, we will run out. The tank will run empty. But Jesus continues to take ordinary things and transform them for his use uh, to carry out the mission that he's called us to. You cannot give away that which you have not received, so make a commitment to love God, love others, serve the community. And as your own relationship with God deepens, you will find Jesus turning water into wine all over the place. A kind word here or there becomes a blessing, a moment of encouragement. A simple meal, a shared meal, turns into community, right? Turns into fellowship. A small gift turns into a life-changing blessing. Uh, a cup of coffee at the coffee shop or at the restaurant turns into a holy moment. You see, because Jesus is still taking everyday ordinary things and turning them into divine blessings, right? He's taking water and turning it into wine all over the place. Jesus' mission isn't to give us what we want. His mission is to provide what we need in order to live the way that he teaches us to. And not only does he say he's going to do it, but he does it. And so if you lean into that, if you trust in that, if you live connected to Jesus, the wine won't run out. Because he'll just take everything around you and turn it into that blessing of wine. 